Growing up, I had a very loving household, and it was a positive place to grow up. We went to church. It was the thing that we kind of did. I just never internalized or understood the message that, that God could be my best friend. At a point in my life, because of the pressure I felt of needing to be something that God would accept, I decided to turn against Him altogether because I didn't think that I could be what God would want me to be. For me, God was not a loving, nurturing father. He was scary and he was, he was judging and condemning and it felt safer for me to reject God altogether because I didn't feel I could be what he wanted. And when I got to college that first night there, some girls invited me to go out and I felt important. Like, they, oh, they want to go out with me. And I didn't really know what that meant. I had maybe had one beer in my life before that, but I was always a very good, straight-A student kind of kid. Uh, wanted to please my parents. I drank for the first time, like really drank. And I felt prettier. I felt smarter. And I think that's the moment where the God-shaped hole in me, I started filling with alcohol. Once I started drinking, that became my number one love in life. Alcohol became my God. It was at 30 that I, that I just was literally alone, without relationship with anyone, and it became my best friend and also my worst enemy. I was an alcoholic. I kept being called to a specific book that talked about God and I kept rejecting it and putting it back because I was not interested in reading anything about God. And eventually somehow, and I believe this is divine intervention, I ended up buying that book. My eyes opened up to the fact that the thing I had been missing my whole life was the message that God wanted a personal relationship with me and really desired an intimate closeness with me. I found myself in church for the first time in many, many years. I left church that day and had a great day and I went home and proceeded to drink. That was the unmanageability of my situation as I, I, I had to. So I proceeded to drink very heavily that night, but at some point in that experience, I had a moment of clarity but I believe in that moment that was God showing me my powerlessness over alcohol. I received a phone call from a family member who invited me to their house and introduced me to a 12-step program. That was the last time I ever took a drink. That was September 7th, 2009, so nine years ago. As I went to church with my husband, my faith started to, to grow and change, and I was feeling called to Scottsdale Bible Church. 
I have a lot of friends that go to Scottsdale Bible Church that were in the moms group and things like that. I could feel then that this was the place that I was to make my spiritual home, my church home, because the messages that we received every week are so life-changing and have grown our faith so much. And the joy that we experience every minute that we, every, every time we set foot on the campus, there's nowhere else that we would rather be. When I became willing, just a little bit, to believe, God busted the doors open and the sunlight of His Spirit came rushing through. It's a profound peace that I could not get from anything in this outer world. For years, I was a prisoner to alcohol, to substances, to all the things in the world that I was using to fill that hole inside of myself that only God could fill. And today, God has restored me to a woman of purpose, a woman who has courage, and most importantly, a relationship with Christ that I would not be here today in this position if I didn't have that relationship with Christ. And for that, I will forever be grateful. Well, I never tire of hearing the stories that we tell all the time around here. And you know, the reason that we, we do that, we tell a story like Alicia's, is because uh, one, we want to encourage you that God is on the move, uh, not just corporately, but individ individually in people's lives uh, here through our church and in our community. Uh, the second reason we tell you that, though, is that we hope you identify something in your experience in the stories that we tell. And so wherever you are in your journey with the Lord, we hope that as we tell stories like Alicia's, that you're going, uh, wow, so God is like that, or he's like that, and here's where my life is, and maybe try to identify uh, what God is doing in your life. I, uh, I hear her story, and though I was not an alcoholic, much of my rebellion back in the early 1980s was centered on alcohol. And I can so relate to that night that Alicia shared where she uh, poured out the bottle in the sink and said, I surrender. And, uh, and, and I had a very similar experience in the early 1980s when I surrendered my life to Jesus. And I've never, ever looked back. And so what a watershed moment for Alicia and for what God is, going, is doing and is going to continue to do in her life. And again, we, we hope to encourage you uh, as well. So Cactus Venue and Chapel, as we all join together now, I, I hope you're encouraged. I want to give one word before I pray on the uh, series that we're wrapping up today and then starting uh, next week. I might have mentioned this before, but I just came back from my break and said I want to talk about relationships for a few weeks. And I'm going to talk about relationships in general from a biblical perspective. And then I want to talk a couple weeks on marriage. And it was our creative arts guys that said, hey, let's you know, brand this relationship hacks and then marriage goals and, and all of that. So I let them do that because, well, they're paid. They got to do something. And, uh, and, and so we, we you know, market them that way. But I, I guess the reason I say that to you is that, you know, I, there's some of you are going to be tempted to stay away maybe the next two weeks because you don't think the marriage thing is relevant to you. Maybe you're doing great in your marriage. Maybe you're, you're not married and don't plan on getting married again. And, and, and I just want to encourage you to not do that. Here, here's why. Again, for two reasons. One, and I know this is going to sound harsh, but I love you. Please do not show yourself to be consumer Christians in today's culture. And what I mean by that 
is that there are too many Christians today that don't see church as a place to worship. They see church as a place to get. And so they look on the, the website and go, who's speaking? What's the topic? You know, all that. And, and they base their decision on whether to come to church on that. I can just promise you, you can search the Bible, you'll never find that kind of mindset toward church. Nobody in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago was saying, who's speaking this weekend? Oh, it's Paul. And you know, I've, I've heard what he has to say, so I don't think I'm going to go. They didn't think like that. They said, no, the church is gathering, and I'm going to be there. And I'm going to be there because God is there, and I want to worship him. And so again, I, I know you guys are, are Americans, and I get that, and, and, and you're consumers, but try to resist seeing church like that. We show up because God is in the house, and if God is in the house, this is where we need to be, and where the church gathered as God calls us to. Having, yep, amen. And the second reason is, it's going to be a great two weeks on marriage. So, you know, again, some of you think, well, it doesn't relate to me. You got a kid? You got a grandkid? You got a friend? Anybody in your life, like Richard, you, just, I, I, you have people you work with that are married, and their marriages are in trouble. And we're going to teach you some things over the next two weeks from God's Word that just might allow you to help them. So I look forward to seeing you next week. Today, we are going to finish up this little three-week thing on relationships with, uh, I think, the watershed topic on relationships, and it has to do with how we speak to each other. So let's bow and pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that your word never leaves us dry. It always speaks to us. Thank you for Jesus who is our Savior, who is the living Word, who speaks to us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who inhabits us and helps us to understand the Godhead rightly and to apply these things in power in our lives. So God, I pray by the power of your Trinity that you would speak to us now so that we might speak well to others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So there's an old saying that we all grew up with. Every one of you know it. Cactus venue and chapel, you all know it. It goes like this. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words or names can never hurt me. It's a lie. I'm here to tell you that today. It's not true, and we need to stop teaching that phrase to our children I know what we mean by it. We're trying to toughen them up and make a distinction between physical harm and verbal harm. But the reality is, the empirical, factual reality, according to the word of God, is that words matter and that words can either hurt somebody terribly or bring healing to somebody's life in a way they never thought possible. If you don't believe me, let's just take a quick look at some passages in the Bible. Proverbs 12, 18. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, that's visual, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And then Proverbs 15, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Or how about what our Savior says? I mean, these are words most of us kind of drive by rather quickly. Jesus is speaking. He's mad at the Pharisees, but he speaks to everybody. And he says, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Don't tell me words do not matter. And then how about this one? This is the most hard-hitting passage in all of the Bible about our words and the things that we speak. James 3, 6. The tongue is also a fire. 
a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. (laughs) Some of you are saying right now, is this going to be a downer of a message? It's actually not. I just simply want us to see before we go into a very positive look at how we speak into others' lives that we need to debunk the myth that our words don't matter, that somehow words are benign. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Hogwash. That's not true at all. But words matter greatly, and they can either hurt somebody or they can heal somebody. They're hardly ever neutral. So I love how Faye Angus, a popular inspirational writer and speaker who recently passed away, once said it. This is a great quote. She says, the Bible tells us that the most vital and yet the most difficult thing is to master our words. She says, it's not so much what goes in one ear and comes out the other that bothers us. It is what goes in one ear, gets garbled in the process, and then comes out of the mouth. (laughs) How many of you can relate to that? Raise your hand right now. How many of you are dead asleep? How many of you can relate to that? Raise your hand right now. Every one of us can. We all have experiences where something comes into our ears, we process it, and we say something, and the second we say it, we want to grab it back because we just said something that we know was either hurtful or wrong or untruthful, and we know it's going to have consequences. Every one of us could tell a story like that. Truly, it is speaking into one's life or another's life that is a characteristic of how we relate, and it's going to be what most of us are known for after we are gone, how we spoke. And so with this understanding, I promised you we're going to be positive the rest of our time. The question I want us to ask is how? How precisely do we speak into another's life in a God-honoring, God-infused way? Have you ever thought about that? And notice that I didn't ask, how do we talk at other people? Because all of us are good at that, right? We're all good at talking at other people. No, I'm asking, how do we speak to those around us in such a way that there is power from the deepest, most spiritual parts of us that touches something rich and deep in them? How do we speak in a spirit-infused, God-infused way? In our time remaining, I want to share with you a couple of thoughts directly from the Bible that I believe will help us know precisely how God would have us speak into the lives of those around us in such a way that they might think we have something rich to share with them. And to make it so that we can get our spiritual heads and hearts around this, I'm going to share with you two things today. What I believe the Bible calls us to speak from in speaking into others' lives, and then what the Bible calls us to speak to when it comes to speaking in other people's lives. So this will be easy for you to track. Speaking from and speaking to. And here's what God desires all of us to speak from, and that is that we speak from a God-created place inside us. I can promise you, you were not expecting that one. None of you walked in here today and guessed that that was our first point because it seems to come out of nowhere. Let me repeat it. We speak from, whenever we speak to anyone around us, 
We are to speak from a God-created place inside of us. Now, what do I mean by a God-created place? It's very important that we all understand this because it's the foundation from which God calls us to speak into others' lives around us. And I'm going to prepare you right now that we're going to go into a rather rich theology lesson now, but if ever a theology lesson was profound and life-altering in its implications and applications, this one is it. If you hang with me over the next five or eight minutes, this can forever change the way that you and I view speaking into our most intimate and even our everyday relationships. And so here we go. Here's the theology lesson. As most of us know, the Bible makes clear that every person on planet earth is born into a state of separation from God. The Bible makes that clear. We are born fallen and sinful, separated from God right out of the womb. That's why we need salvation. Now, the Bible has a word to describe that stuck or fallen person as they go on to live life. And the Bible uses the word the flesh or the human nature to describe that fallen person living in a separation from God. It's you and I using our own strength, independent from God, to make our lives work. That's the flesh, our human nature that we're born with, but that's fallen, trying to live life independent of the one who made us. And the Bible further makes clear that this flesh of ours, this human nature, is a very powerful thing. That you and I can do lots of things in the power of our flesh, the power of our own strength. Here you go. We can get good grades in the flesh, secure good jobs in the flesh, find a good spouse in the flesh, raise pretty good kids, get good promotions, save for a good retirement, take nice vacations, buy nice things, celebrate nice holidays. Think about what everybody does in Scottsdale and Phoenix who doesn't have a walk with God. They're doing all of these things in what? Their own power their own strength. And the Bible has a name for that. It's called the flesh. And here's where it gets tricky. Romans 7 verse 18 and talking about the flesh says this. It says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So the flesh is not a positive thing because it's doing all these things separate from God. But the reason it gets tricky is that notice here it doesn't say that the flesh cannot do any good or good things. No, in the end it's saying that no good dwells in the flesh in the sense of that it's doing it separate from God. It has no eternal value, no eternal significance because it's all about you and you living life on your own independent of God. Now, at this point, just give me a head nod, chapel venue and and, and cactus as well, that you understand what I'm talking about to this point, that there's this thing called the flesh that people can live independent of God. Give me a head nod. Are you guys awake? Give me a head nod that you understand that. Good. Because it's really important that we understand this idea of the flesh because we're going to now accelerate in our understanding here. Because here it is. With this understanding of the flesh, I want you now to look at a few Bible passages that help us understand what God has done when he brought salvation into our lives and how this alters 
our choice or decision to either live in the flesh or not. First passage is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, tucked away in the Old Testament. It's a prophecy of what would someday come, and let's read it here together. God is speaking, he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your, say it with me, flesh. So there it is. God said, I mean, a thousand years before Jesus' time, that someday he was going to put a new heart and put a new spirit inside of his followers. And though I think this is kind of a a double fulfillment prophecy, this is going to happen someday for Israel, which is a a different sermon. What most Bible experts point out is that when Jesus came, God began fulfilling that prophecy based upon the salvation that he now brings to you and I. In other words, the Bible says that something very profound happens when a person trusts Christ and he or she now gets this new heart and the spirit begins to live inside of us. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning you have faith in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new creation, very, very similar to this idea of a new heart. And as if this were not enough, we've covered this before, the Bible says that the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now begin to inhabit that new part of you that Jesus has redeemed, and it starts to inhabit you, even if you don't feel it, even if you don't see it, even if sin is covering it up, because that can happen for a Christian, it's there. Because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. So look at how Romans 8 verse 10 nails it. It says, but if Christ is in you, and he is if you believe in him, although the body is dead because of sin, that's the flesh, the spirit is life. Or as one translation says, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And so don't miss this gang. The Bible will then go on to say that there is a battle brewing every day for the Christian between what? The flesh and the spirits. Between the old you that's still in you, that still rears its ugly head each moment of each day, tempting you to live life independent of God in your natural fallen fleshly self. But now because of Jesus, there's also another part of you a deeper part of you where the spirit of God inhabits, where Jesus makes his home, where he is alive and, he, and he's calling you to live life in dependence upon him and in his power. They, we call this the, the flesh versus the spirit. And every follower of Jesus is in this battle each moment of each day. This is the picture the Bible paints for you and I. Now, with this very clear theology lesson in tow, let's now dare to apply this to our relationships, shall we? Because when you do, here becomes the profound truth. And that is that you and I are called to speak to others, not from our flesh, though we can still do it. And as we're gonna see in a minute, Christians do it all the stinking time, 
No, we are now called to speak from a new heart that is within us, a God-created place within us. Maybe now you understand that. And we are to speak words empowered by the Holy Spirit who now lives and breathes in us. And we are called in Galatians 5 to keep in step with the Spirit and release his power in and through us, even with our words. And so as I just hinted to, gang, this is really very real stuff You and I, each moment of each day are in a battle. Every conversation, every thought, every decision you have, you have a choice before you. It's like a fork in the road each moment of each day. You can either go down the road of the flesh and basically say to God, I got this. I can do this myself. I can speak myself. I can think myself. I can do all this on my own. Or you can go down the road of the Spirit. And tap into that part of you that the Holy Spirit's living in and say, I think I'm going to do life God's way and with God in control. And to have your words be the very words that he wants you to speak to those around you. I'm telling you, this is a choice that we have each moment of each day as we interact with those around us, either speak from the flesh or speak from the Spirit. Now, I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, well, KG, man, I get this, I understand it, but it just seems so nebulous, and, and, and it seems even kind of freaky, you know, and, and so, you know, how do I make sense of this? Here's how you make sense of this, because here's what I know. If you and I were having a cup of coffee today, just you and me, and I asked you, have there ever been times where somebody, a fellow Christian, has spoken words into your life that seemed fine and right, even cogent, but just really didn't touch the deepest recesses of your soul. They seemed to have no power. Would you relate to an experience like that where somebody has spoken into your life and it just didn't seem to make much impact? Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. Almost every one of us. I mean, we've all had experiences where somebody speaks into our life, maybe a godly grandmother or a godly mother or a dear friend, and they just didn't seem to penetrate. But then in that same cup of coffee, I'd ask you conversely, have there been other times where somebody has spoken into your life with seemingly similar words, but now these somehow had life and power to them. They went deep down into the soul and they spoke to something deep into you. Have you ever had an experience like that? Most of you would say that you have. And here's my only question to you right now. How in the world do you make sense of that? I mean, in your worldview, in your theology, how do you explain that? Is it the burrito that you ate last night? Is it the mood that you happen to be in? Is it just a season of life? I mean, that's the way psychologists would explain it. And that's fine if you want to believe that, gang. The Bible has a different answer. The Bible says that there's a spiritual battle going on each moment of each day for your very soul and that God is working to penetrate your very soul and he's using others to do that. And sometimes they're in the spirit and speaking words that come from him and they penetrate deep and sometimes they are not. And sometimes you are not. And that's really what's happening here. It's powers that we don't see, but when we're honest with ourselves, We know that they are real. It's fleshly wisdom versus spirit-empowered truth. It's the old heart, the flesh, versus the new heart and which it is that we are speaking from. 
You know, at this point uh, in my message prep this week, I thought, you know, there's so many stories I could tell you all of uh, my experience with this because as I'm going to argue in a minute, this should be the norm. We should be speaking to each other, as the Bible says, in spiritual words and in the power of the Spirit all the time. I mean, that's what the whole church should be about. And there are some stories I could tell you that would be like really big and huge and life-changing, but then there's others that are just everyday, normal, mundane conversations that the Spirit inhabits. And I thought I'd tell you about one of those because I think that's actually uh, more helpful to us to see that this happens in everyday life. I want to be careful how I say this story, so don't misunderstand me. This summer, when I was in my sabbatical, we knew that my first book is coming out at the end of July, and you know the the church here, people, the leaders here, kept emailing me all over the all summer, saying, you know, uh, when you get back, we're going to do a book signing. And I got to tell you, when I thought of doing a book signing, I thought, you know, I'd rather eat a jar of mayonnaise in one sitting than I would do a book signing. And, and Kim asked me to make this very clear to you because it's more about me than you. I just, I abhor this celebrity status thing that most megachurch pastors live under and, you know, this idea that, you know, people want your autograph and, and, and all that. I just, I just, it just leaves such a bad taste in my mouth. I tell you guys that all the time. The Bible says Elijah was a man just like us, <laughs> but he prayed. So if there's anything I do, I pray more than most of you. But other than that, I, I'm a man just like you. And so this celebrity status thing, I just, I just didn't want to do it. I, I, I even pictured it, you know, being in the foyer here and be a long line, everybody waiting to get Jamie's autograph. And I just, I abhor that stuff. So every time somebody said, hey, you know, um, don't forget when you come back, we got to do a book signing and they're bugging me. They even sent me like 25 different pens to get the right one that I want and all this. And I just thought, really, really use church money for that. And so, you know, it just, I, I had a very bad attitude toward it, as you can tell. And, and nobody could tell me different. Every time I whined to somebody, and I'm really good at whining, they would say, well, tough, you got to do it. And, uh, and, and, and they even gave me the reasons why. When I was driving home uh, in August with Kim across country, we were in Michigan. I, I can vividly remember being on I-40. I think I was in Oklahoma at that time. And I, uh, I got a phone call from a dear brother here in the church. He, he's a guy who's alive in the spirit. Like our video, this guy was an alcoholic for, for a very, very long time. And it was what you call a stand-up drunk. Like, you know, he, he had a great job, made lots of money, but his wife and his kids and his grandkids, they all knew it, just a lot of relational alienation. And a few years ago, he had an amazing experience of sobriety and healing, and he's been a different man ever since. And it's not just about sobriety, he's also walking and living in the spirit as best he can, and I, I sense that when I'm with him. So anyways, he calls me as I'm driving down I-40, and he says, hey, Jamie, really glad that you're coming home. And then he says what everybody says, he goes, you know, can't wait for you to sign my book, you know. And I'm pretty honest in everyday life, so I said to him what I just said to you, I said, you know, I'd rather eat a jar of mayonnaise in one sitting than I would do this book signing. And again, I'm driving down I-40, so this is a normal, mundane experience, and what he said next just pierced me. He said, oh, pastor, he said, I, I think you misunderstand. He said, uh, people would feel really honored to have you as their pastor sign their book, and they're going to keep it for a very long time. They might even hand it down to their kids, because it's not about being a celebrity, it's about you being their pastor and, and getting you to sign their book. And again, I know psychologists would have a field day with this, but let's just put that aside right now. Something happened in my spirit. 
in which God spoke to me in that moment and said, stop whining. This is good. This is of me. This is for your church. And God in his gentle voice said, this isn't about you. This is about others. And you need to sign their books. And when I got back and I saw that line out there, I still had a terrible feeling in my spirit about it because I don't like that. But I understood why we're doing it. And when a brother came up to me and had me sign Marguerite's book today, I I did it with joy. And so please don't be shy to ask for that because I now get why. But you know, the reason I got why is because a brother, I don't even think he knew that this was happening. Many times the spirit uses us, we have no idea. But this brother just spoke simple words into my life as he's walking with the Lord. And God used those to change my attitude and to change my spirit. And again, that's such a small thing, isn't it? I mean, it's just a small everyday. I could tell you huge things. I could tell you how people spoke into my life and it caused such a massive shift in repentance. It was so obvious of the spirit. I, I, I have stories like that too. Here's the good news. I have lots of stories of people speaking life into my life. Do you? And do you have stories of how God used you to speak into others' life? You know, if you're tracking with me at all in this, the the question that you might be asking right now is how? I mean, Jamie, how do we know which is which? How do we know when we're speaking from our new heart or how do we know when we're speaking from the flesh? Because it all seems so jumbled together. And by the way, it is. And, And though there's no, you know, true empirical markers in the scriptures for how we know with certainty, whether we're speaking from the spirit or the flesh, because it is very nebulous. It is a discernment issue. The the great spiritual writers would tell you that. It's a discernment of whether or not we're in the spirit or in the flesh. You learn it over years of walking with the Lord. Having said that, there is one particular verse that's always grabbed me over the years that helps me understand whether I've postured my life rightly or not in the moment to be speaking from the spirit, not from the flesh. And here's the passage. I'm going to give it to you in the contemporary English version because it's a passage most of you know and I wanted to mix it up a little bit. It's John 1.14 and it's talking about Jesus. And it says, The word, Jesus, became a human being and lived here with us. We saw his true glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. From him, from Jesus, the complete gifts of undeserved grace and truth have come down to us. What's it saying here? It's saying that when Jesus came to this earth, he came to us, as one other translation says, full of grace and truth. That word full means brimming over. Picture a cup that you're filling up with water and you don't like it when you do this, but you fill it so full that it's starting to spill over. That's what that word means. Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. Now watch this. Could it be that that's why when he interacted with people, whether it's Zacchaeus up the tree or the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery or Matthew at the tax collector's booth or Peter when he's trying to restore him or the man who was dropped in the middle of his teaching through the roof for a healing. Whenever Jesus interacted with anybody, it was powerful in the spirit because he is and was the son of God. But as the son of God, he came to us full of two things, grace and truth. Grace, as you guys know, is what? Undeserved merit, undeserved favor. Grace says, even though you're a sinner, even though you deserve this, I choose to give you this. 
Grace is cutting people slack. Grace is forgiving people when they don't deserve to be forgiven. Grace is accepting people when they don't deserve to be accepted. And I don't know why it is, but so many Christians seem to have a problem with that, don't they? Especially in today's culture. They're like, you know, well, hey, you know, I want to be sloppy grace and easy grace and all this. And I go, well, what does that even mean? I, I mean, Jesus came to this earth in which all of us deserved hell apart from him for all of eternity. And, and he came full of grace so that he might provide salvation to those who believe that when we least deserved it, as Romans 5 tells us, he showed his love to us. That is grace. And now we're called to give grace to other people. And so here's all I know, is that when you or I are in a, a mode of grace, of acceptance and forgiveness and love to the least of these there's a really good chance what's going to come out of your mouth at that moment is of the Spirit. Amen? But conversely, if you're about what Philip Yancey calls ungrace, <laughs> choking on the fumes of ungrace, being one of these hard nut, tough nut, you better get your program together, you better get your act together, or I'm not going to be a part of your life. If you're that kind of Christian, then my guess is what's going to come out of your mouth is not very much of the Spirit. But then notice Jesus came to us full of truth truth. I write in my book, there's two kinds of truth in the Bible, transcendent truth and personal truth. Transcendent truth is the truth that comes from on high. It's the absolute unchanging truth of God in the Bible that's contained, that God's given us so that we can understand him. But then there's personal truth. And personal truth is the truth of who you are and all of your messed upness and all of your goodness and all of your badness. And, and here's what I write in the book, that the idea of truth is to understand transcendent truth and then align your personal truth with it, right? So here's my question to you. When you and I are thinking that way, when we're thinking that the goal of life is to discover his transcendent truth and align our personal truth with it, could it be that when we're thinking that way, the words that come out of our mouth just might be spirit-filled? That when you're dealing with that wayward kid, or that seeker next door, or that spouse that you're mad at, or whoever it might be, that if you're full of grace and full of truth, maybe, just maybe, you've aligned yourself in such a way that God is going to speak in and through you. Grace and truth, two markers that I think are indicative of speaking in the Spirit. So with that understanding, but let's wrap this time up before we go to our elders fund offering and ask one final question. And that is, what does this mean in everyday life? I mean, so far today, we've learned that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt you and that that's not true. We've had a great theology lesson on the flesh versus the spirit. And we've learned we need to function in the spirit. And we've learned that functioning in the spirit is best going to happen if we're functioning in the modes of grace and truth that come to us in Jesus. But what does this mean as we walk out of here in just a few minutes? Cactus venue and chapel for all of us. Well, let me share with you the second thing that I promised you. And it's not just what we speak from, but what we speak to in other people's lives. And this is a good wrap-up point. And that is that we speak to others with encouragement and with wisdom born of truth and with words that help. We speak encouragement, wisdom born of truth and help. And gang, I gotta tell you right now, this point here, which I'm gonna show you is backed up fully by the Bible, um, is a great challenge to Christians today. Because I hear a lot of Christians talk. 
I interact with a lot of you, and I hear myself even talk. And all I can tell you is that the vast majority of people today, even sadly many Christians, do not have people around them who regularly speak words of encouragement, wisdom born of truth, and help into their lives, at least in a spirit-infused, non-fleshly way. At first, let's cement that this is what the Bible calls us to. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So this is a command given to the church that we are to encourage each other every day. That word encourage is the Greek word parakaleo. It means to come alongside. That's the Greek word parakaleo. You'll love this. It means to call into someone's life. So it means to draw very close to someone, come right alongside them, and then call into their life words of affirmation and life and encouragement to them. That's what we're to do with each other as the church. And then as you're chewing on that, notice with me wisdom. Now, now this is important. Dial into this. I know you're getting tired. You're thinking of lunch. Let's dial into this. James 1.5. But if any one of you lacks wisdom, and by the way, that means all of us, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given. So simply notice this. There is a wisdom out there that you don't get from Dr. Phil. There's a wisdom out there that you don't get from Oprah, that you don't get from a New York Times bestseller list. Ready for this? There's a wisdom out there that you don't get from your own thinking. There's a wisdom out there that only comes from God. Amen? And he says, if you ask him, he will give you this divine wisdom to know what to do in a difficult situation, or maybe to know how to help another person in a difficult situation. So we're to encourage each other with our words. We're to speak divine wisdom to each other in our words. And then very quickly, notice Hebrews 4, 6, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So like wisdom, there is a form of help that comes from God. There's a form of help that that, that comes directly from him. So add it all up. You got encouragement, you have divine wisdom, and you have divine help that comes from God to us. And here's my final question to each and every one of us. We have to wrestle with this, and it's this. Is it possible for you and I to access all of this from God on a regular basis? The encouragement and affirmation to our spirits, the divine wisdom he wants to give our lives, and then the divine help that he gives us, what the Bible calls deliverance. Is it possible for us to access this from him on a regular basis and then pass it on to others? as we interact and speak with them. Answer the question, is it possible, yes or no, to do that? Yes. Now, ready for this? (laughs) It's not just possible. It's the norm. See, that's what I want our church to be about. That's my vision for our church, is that this would be the norm for how God's people function. That every word that comes out of our mouth is a spirit-infused word that is functioning under the auspices of grace and truth that come to us from Jesus and that go right to the heart of another person as we focus on encouragement, as we focus on divine wisdom, as we focus on on the help that only God can give. And, And if it's possible, here's my logic, for you and I to get this from God, then it's more than possible, it's probable for us to share this with others.
Two last illustrations and then we're done. You know, I had a, a kind of week where, and I love weeks like this, not in a sick way, but it's just me being a pastor. I had the kind of week where I was neck deep in marital breakdown, not my own. I was neck deep in, in, in rebellious kids. I was neck deep in people struggling with depression and anxiety. And I was neck deep this week in relational conflict. I actually enjoyed that because uh, we're speaking on relationships here. So what a great week to talk to people about relational conflict. I'm talking about real serious relational conflict. At relationships and marriage and relationships with kids and relationships with with employees that just are, are ugly and going south. And, and, and the thought hit me, because I think about this stuff whenever I'm preparing a sermon, are any of the things that we're talking about today relevant to those things? And obviously, because I think this is a pretty good sermon, I thought, yes, I, I think they are. I think they're terribly relevant. But then I, I thought this, because I know how you guys think. I thought, but, but any of us who are in relational conflict right now, and tell me if this isn't true, are going to deeply resist what we're talking about today. And, and naturally so. Because you're thinking right now, say it's an estranged spouse, that God wants you. God wants you to, to give it another shot. And you're thinking right now, I'll be darned if I am going to speak encouragement and wisdom and help into their lives. That is not what I want to share with them. I know it's hard to picture a Christian thinking like that, but just go with me. That, that is how many of us think. That's how I think when I am angry and estranged from somebody. And the temptation of the what? The flesh is going to say, you speak what you darn want to speak into their life. And you say what's going to make you feel good. The question is, and let's quote Dr. Phil in the positive now, how's that working for you? Because it doesn't work very well. No, here's my challenge to you as we wrap this thing up. I challenge you, I dare you, to speak encouragement and divine wisdom and divine help, even in the difficult situations you're in right now. And as you do so, I dare you to ask God, look him full in the face because he loves you, and say, God, may what I speak be what you want me to speak. And you don't need to be afraid of that. Because if you're speaking what God wants you to speak, even if it's truth, and I'm telling you not to speak the truth, but speak it from a divine human or divine wisdom standpoint. As you're speaking that, I promise you, that stands the best chance of bringing resolution, of bringing peace, of bringing reconciliation to conflict. I mean, this is God's word. It never fails us. It, it always, always works. You just have to have the faith and the discipline to want to apply it. Let me share one final story, and this will encourage you. Uh, James, uh, where is the, uh, oh, let me get the, the thing right. Um, yeah, where is it? Yeah, that's right. Um, Tilden Edwards, in his wonderful little book uh, on Sabbath keeping, uh, tells a story that I thought was very, very encouraging to you and I. Most Christians, they don't keep the Sabbath. We don't think that's a commandment out of the Big Ten that really matter. I need to do a sermon on it at some point because I disagree I think all Christians need one day of rest uh, a week, a Sabbath time. I have mine, and I keep it uh, inviolate. And, uh, and, and, and so Tilden Edwards writes a book called Sabbath Time, and he talks about how he and his family decided to keep the Sabbath one day a week of, of no work and just you know, pure rest. And they also added something creative to their Sabbath that I thought was hilarious. They, they outlawed criticizing each other on the Sabbath. 
They said on the Sabbath, no criticism can come out of a mouth within this family to another person. As you could guess, that took some practice. But month after month, they did a weekly Sabbath with no criticism of each other. And I want to read for you what Edwards writes. He says, as months went on and we kept this commitment, we realized more and more of our children's friends were coming over on Sundays just to hang around. No one in the family had talked about this commitment, but somehow other teenagers knew that this home was a good place to be. I wonder what would happen if you and I were to start to have words that were infused by his spirit each moment of each day. I wonder how many people would want to be more around us as they receive encouragement, divine wisdom and truth and help in their time of need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how your word never fails us and your word is always true. And I thank you, Lord, how your word speaks to even relationships and this whole idea of speaking to each other. And God, if I don't miss my guess, there are most of us here at Shea and Cactus that, that desperately desire to speak more life into those around us, and even be spoken to with more life by those around us. So God, help us to heed these things. Help us to realize words matter. Help us to realize that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and that rubs off on us. Help us realize, Lord, that we have a choice to speak encouragement, to find wisdom and help into the lives of those around us. And Lord, as we do so, even in the difficult situations, God, would you show up, baptize and anoint those moments so that we might look back on those times and say only God. And we'll give you great praise for what you do. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.